0: This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit FilmGeekRadio.com for more great shows. A great hand reached out of the dark and grasped mine for a moment, mightily and tenderly. I said to myself, the veil between, though very dark, is very thin.
1: Hello, and welcome to The Thin Place, the Film Geek Radio podcast devoted to discussions of religion, faith, and spirituality in film. Your hosts for this episode are Todd Truffin, That's Me, and Ken Moorfield. That's Me come from the future to tell you that this is going to be the best podcast ever. This is episode number 24 for October 2012. Our topic for this episode is Looper, the 2012 film by director Ryan Johnson about time travel this is not 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 a spoiler free discussion and this is one film that i think both ken and i would agree see it without spoilers then go do it and then come back and hear what we have to say
0: yeah i would just add to that i would say not just even spoiler Podcast, but I would try to avoid most reviews or even a lot of trailers because this trailer is pretty good about not giving away the whole movie but a lot of a lot of reviews just give more extensive plot summary and, and there's a real pleasure toward watching the film unfold and not knowing everything that's going to happen, knowing right. the basic premise. And I think we can just make
1: a little brief comment here that I think both of us really did enjoy this film and one of the things that of the many pleasures of the film is that it was one of those nice films where you didn't really know what was going to happen next. It was smart enough in its writing that many possibilities are set up and we we don't know necessarily what's going to happen next. So
0: I would agree with that. It's the first 2012 narrative film that I've heard people in my sort of blogosphere, you know, online environment seem to be genuinely enthusiastic about. I mean, people have been talking about The Master, but it's been more of a respectful discussion of this is a new movie by an important filmmaker as opposed to the, oh my God, I love this movie kind of chatter. I don't know if I'm quite in the love category, but I I liked it a lot. I I, I really enjoyed this film. So Looper is uh,
1: a film set in the future and... In this future time travel has been um, invented and outlawed um, very quickly and so that now the only people that are really doing time travel are gangsters. It's being used by various organized crime units. Our hero is an assassin. His job is to basically when he's called go to a place in the middle of a cornfield and the mobsters send somebody back, to, um, back from the future, and he kills them. This becomes complicated for him when, in a, an occurrence that is not uncommon, he is asked to, well, the person who shows up that he's supposed to kill is himself, from 30 years in the future. And at this point, things predictably kind of go awry, because his future self turns out not to be so cooperative. And the story unfolds. So, Ken, we look at this film, in some ways it's, you know, it's a a good good sci-fi type thriller film. Why does The Thin Place want to look at it?
0: I think science fiction is about ideas, and inherent in the whole time travel theme or trope of most science fiction is that question that a lot of Christians wrestle with of, predestination versus free will what exactly is time and if god knows what we're going to do or if we've Mm -hmm. already done it are we destined to do it do we have choices Uh, so traditionally a lot of more thoughtful science fiction has wrestled with that by trying to define time and what Mm -hmm. it is make metaphors that suggest that time is not linear but using geographical metaphors i've often heard the religious metaphor of time being a river that god is not outside of so god can walk up up and down the river more recent science fiction in the last 20 years or so i think toys with the idea of time not being immutable that perhaps we can change multiple variations Mm -hmm. of worlds or universes for me for from a a thin place perspective, though the the thing that really first grabbed my attention is a, a more basic human question of individual character and whether or not it can change. The thing that elevates Looper is that it's not really about plot. Right. the The plot is a setup to really examine choices, and those are the best movies for me, particularly. One of the ways that the Bruce Willis character, the old Joe, tries to change the future is using that Terminator conceit of, I'm going to find someone in the past and kill him so that he can't grow up and do something. And in this case, the person he's trying to kill is a child. And that creates a whole level of mixed feelings. You've got that standard trope of, would you kill Hitler or would you kill someone else? Well, of course I would, because that would end human suffering. Geared with, I think that very primal, very real and authentic, true moral revulsion of, well, there has to be something wrong with killing a killing a child. You know yeah. that that just there can't be a universe in which that is a moral thing to do, regardless of what he or she is going to grow up and do
1: and one of the things the film does i think to nicely complicate this question is that you know the kind of in terminator the going back to kill a young version of something everybody knew exactly who to kill in this film the old joe doesn't know he's got He's narrowed it down. There are three possibilities. Well, that was true in Terminator 2. There were three Sarah Connors oh. in, in the phone book. Yeah, that's right. That's right. You know, for our old Joe, he's got three children. One of the three is going to be grow up to be this person who cr- creates all sorts of problems in the future. And he has real no, no real way of knowing which one of the three. And I think that really does complicate things for, you know, that, that idea of,
0: you know, I'm going to kill you. I don't know if you're the one. So, I mean, would you be okay if it was only one? Well, I mean, you say it's okay yeah. to kill only one <laughs> no. child? I
1: wouldn't say it's only, but I think it complicates things.
0: Sure, right. man, it makes it the
1: even more. Because now you've got two of these children that you're talking about killing that you're, you're saying, I'm, I'm going to sacrifice this child who may not be the one. I mean, I think at least in, in certain kind of movie logic, if we know this is the child. Right. Um, we can at least perhaps wrap our head around that sort of revulsion we have about hurting children.
0: Yeah, I'll go with that. It, in, in real life, moral decisions are often messy or complicated. Right. They're not, even if they're am, ambiguous in terms of I'm not sure whether or not I could do that, it's still very concrete, you know. Whereas oftentimes in real life, because we've only got partial information right. or we only think that we know what we know. I suppose it's even more further complicated by the fact that it's not like time and manipulating time is this experiment with direct consequences. He thinks this is going to change the future. And he doesn't but he doesn't know. So is killing a child that you know is gonna grow up to be Hitler or I mean, not metaphorically, Hitler, he doesn't kill six million people, obviously. Uh, But to do great evil, the same as killing a child who might grow up to do great evil, when you're dealing with technological advances, will someone else just do it? If you go back in time and kill Oppenheimer, does that mean we won't have an atomic bomb? Or does that just mean someone else will invent it? And in the world of Looper, I think it's it's not
1: even just technological. It's, you know, because the only thing he wants to change is this one person who is doing a very specific action. And that action is something that is imminently logical. You know, if you're a person in the future who wants to take over the criminal enterprise, the thing that this Rainmaker is doing, which is to go back and kill all the assassins, it makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. And and I think your point is well taken in that if, if it's not going to be this one guy, it's going to be somebody else.
0: There's still going to be time travel. There's, There's still, still going to be...
1: You know, criminal people that are trying to take over territory. Yeah.
0: Right. And in some ways, too, it, the old Joe, it's not even his motives are mixed because it's not even so much that I want to write this great social injustice. It's something happened to one particular person that I love, and I, I want to that. do this to stop that or to save them and i hadn't really thought about that until we were talking just now but that's really interesting to me from a moral perspective because we're in a political election year and i think that's very true of people of all parties i think that's true of fallen human beings oftentimes one of the ways that we allow ourselves or talk ourselves into doing things that we ourselves think are morally suspect is by Wrapping it in rationalizations, in justifications that have a very higher or elevated moral justification than what is our actual intent in our heart. We use that as sort of moral cover to say this isn't simply about vengeance for something that was done to me or, um, you know, one very more narrow outcome as real and legitimate as it is. Uh, I know that that would be problematic, and I couldn't sell people on it. So let me say this is about protecting everyone and writing this whole practice. Sure. Yeah, because I mean, old Joe consistently throughout the film is
1: having this argument with young Joe. I think you know one of the interesting things that Looper does that lots of other time travel movies try to avoid is having the old the old version and the new version meet. That somehow that's always considered a bad thing. Yes. Um, and in this film just kind of revels in having young Joe and old Joe be in conflict. Mm-hmm. And, and one of those conflicts is that old Joe has a life that he constantly refers to, this is mine, mm-hmm. this is mine, this is mine, this is mine. And it's been damaged, and he's trying to save it from that damage, but he still wants his life to essentially be what it was doesn't want anything else to change except for the killing of this person that he cares for uh, young Joe is constantly saying wait a minute that's not my life I want what's mine you know that tension between the young Joe who could still and and this is you know getting back to our this idea about predestination that that idea of predestination is that everything is set we are our destinies are pretty much set for us um, this film seems to really be into the idea that no the future is not set the future can change um, and young Joe is saying who are you old Joe talking to himself yes you are the product of certain choices but do I have to make those same choices how do you know I'm gonna make those
0: same choices All Right. the I was gonna say the first scene. I guess it's actually the second scene where the old Joe and the young Joe meet in in a cafe it, it's a terrific scene The actors, Bruce Willis and Joseph Gordon-Levitt, are both very good. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I think Looper does really well is that it takes us a number of setups, the time travel, the changing the future that we've seen before and think, oh, I know where this is going to go. Right. And tweaks it a, a little bit. And one of the ways that I really liked that interaction between the old and the young is that when they first have this scene in the cafe it's very traditional in the sense of the old joe is trying to give advice to the young joe and it's very metaphoric for a parent child or if i could only go back and tell my younger if i only knew then what i know now here's what i would tell myself and you get that very universally recognizable human frustration of they won't listen. I really do know best. I don't just think I know best. I yeah. I, I do know best. And I'm you, and I actually live your life, and I know what's best. Right. But uh, so you, you know you're expecting the whole movie, or I was expecting the whole movie to be about that, to say, okay, we're on the side of the old Joe. Right. But then the old Joe has this vengeance that the young Joe hasn't really acquired yet and is not only I've acquired knowledge or information that's helped me get better in some areas get off drugs mm-hmm. uh, because that's one of the things that the young Joe about well, why would you kill your future self well if you've ever been around people who are addicts I've been around people who are addicts they're not future forward thinking they live for today right. and in the day and it's like you can really disassociate that metaphor works you can really disassociate from your future self and say, that's not me, 30 years from now. Exactly. You know, they can really actually think that way. And so the movie's sort of set up at that point for thinking, okay, well, this is going to be a metaphor of how do you get your younger self to become your older self or, or listen. But then it becomes, well, well, wait a minute. Maybe old Joe has gone wrong in some ways, and... <laughs> won't listen to Young Joe because he's like, I've already done You know, I've already done it. These are some things that are wrong or you shouldn't do. And by splitting your moral allegiance amongst the characters, I think the film really makes you look at what they're doing at any given moment and not just lazily say, okay, that's the good character. That's the bad character. He's the one that i want to win or resolve because you find yourself saying i i want him to win and then he'll do something and then you're like well wait a minute i don't you know i, right. did, I don't and 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 that's very rare in a lot of action movies when we get to the climactic scene i didn't know what was going to happen and that's that's yeah. pretty rare you can usually see i I was like, well, this could go a lot of different ways. I, I, and that's exciting it is. in a movie when, when you don't know what's going to happen, when you're waiting to see what happens. Next. And I didn't know what I wanted to happen. Mm. I, I was you know, I, I'm i for the, I mean, I knew what I didn't want to happen. Sure. But I didn't know how the film could resolve it for what I didn't want to happen would actually not result in a lot of other things that I didn't want to happen. Uh, so I, I found that to be I, I found that to be really a little bit more advanced than you get in a lot of um, contemporary science fiction or or yeah.
1: action movies. And it is that complexity that you know I found intriguing as well. Um, I've just been spending some time rewatching old Star Trek episodes. And I mean, even you know, back in the original series, you know, mid to late '60s, they have some of these time travel situations, um, and there's the alternate universe, you know, sort of setup, which is kind of part of the time travel theory. And one of the things that is interesting, I mean, in those stories, it, it, it is straightforward. There's good Spock and bad Spock. There's good Kirk and bad Kirk. And there is it's really there's no choice really. I mean, we say, oh, well, that's his good side and that's his bad side. And this film doesn't let you do that, you know, because you're, you're seeing both of these characters, young and old, we, we, they're the same person. They're the same character, in a sense, but they've now been split. And just when we think we really like old Joe, he goes off and kills children.
0: Yeah.
1: And it's like, whoa, wait a minute. Well, there's And young Joe, oh, he's this drug addict guy, and we're like, oh, and he's... We're not sure we like him, but then he goes and does something nice um, or wrong and it is a very complex um, mm-hmm. relationship that you have to both characters, uh, which as you said I mean it it's masterful we don't see it a lot,
0: um, but it also feels true feels more real usually the track is one of moral progress there is you know the old Joe has gotten off drugs or gotten better, but here there is moral in this one area there's moral deterioration and so that I struggled with that for a little bit in in terms of like okay for you to be able to kill a child and that's handled we don't actually see it. I mean, we right. we see him going in, and then we hear the gunshot, and we see the aftermath where he's you know throwing up as a sign of moral revulsion, which I'm, I wish we could have a moratorium on, uh, <laughs> on that. Like, but I, where I was thinking, mm-hmm. so I I didn't quite understand the moral accounting where a young per the young version of me is not willing to do this, and the older version of me is willing to do this, uh, particularly where the film sort of sets it up as. You're going in the direction of broadening or enlightening moral awareness. But then the more I thought about it, the more I thought, well, that's true, too. We are not just unified moral beings. We, we can make progress in one area, whether it's social justice or you know, personal accountability, getting off drugs or health, and still have blind spots in, in other areas or things that we're yeah. willing to do. And we can also have traumatic experiences that change us. That moral accounting can go backwards. There can be uh, deterioration. Yeah.
1: I guess that part didn't bother me so much because we, we, in the film we get that middle section where we get Joe, the old Joe's story. And we see that, you know, he moves, you know, the, the period from when he, we, we see young Joe, there's this 30 year period. And we see him spend that thirty years, essentially, even though he had gotten his payoff, and was supposed to go live for thirty years until he was the loop was closed in the terminology of the film. Um, you know, he blows his money in ten years, and spends the next twenty years being a gangster again, mm-hmm. killing, killing, killing. And the character is very clearly shown as killing itself is not something this character has a yes. problem with. And now, I agree, killing a child, that's, that's a different thing. But killing is not. And then he has his, his redemptive moment. He meets this woman, she gets him off drugs, he has this new lease on life, he's very devoted to her, and then the traumatic event. She's killed. Now, you know, I think you know, that's the thing that kind of pushes him over the edge. I mean, he's already a place where killing's not a problem. And it's, you know, it's it's a less of a jump. I mean, if you go from right, a person who's right. not going to kill to killing children, that's a huge.
0: I, absolutely, I mean, absolutely. I think uh, I think you hit the nail on the head, and that I I really like the fact that the film, the way the in which the film, toys with or merges the themes of addiction right. with the themes of violence, because as you know, one of my pet peeves and. A lot of Christian circles is how Chris. Some Christians will be, uh, some conservative or very fundamental Christian viewers will be uh, outraged that any sexual content or any profanity, verbal profanity, language, but will swallow violence whole like that. Right. You know, uh, like that, like that doesn't affect you. And I, I do think that by the time you get to the old Joe in the movie, we very cursely, he's hes reformed. But I think one of the things that is true about addicts is that, that that never goes away. The standard metaphor you'll hear in churches is you can smoke for 20 years and give it up, or you can be an alcoholic for 20 years and repent of some of the things that you did while you were drunk. Uh, but that, and... You can be forgiven for those things, but that doesn't protect you from getting cirrhosis of the liver or the natural effect of the things that you did while you were right an alcoholic. And I think one of the things that the film postulates is that a lifetime of violence does harden your heart or cauterize your conscience. Mm-hmm. Uh, To the point in which it's still a leap, it's still something, it's still a line he hasn't passed before. Right. But it's a line that he's edged up to before, and it's a line that he's comfortable of being around or thinking in that way. And that's really problematic from a Christian perspective because sometimes people respond to that by building a hedge around the law. Uh, and I was always sort of trained in the intervarsity said building a hedge around the law was wrong. That's what the Pharisees did. Mm. And then, you know, you have an additional burden of that's not really in the law. That's just your way of building a hedge around the law. But for some people who are vulnerable, if you have a particular besetting sin or a particular trigger, building a hedge around yeah. the law is a good thing. If you're an alcoholic, you don't always necessarily, you know, ideally you want to be in a place where you have to master yourself so that if you find yourself in a situation. You're not at the mercy of your circumstances. But you don't want to put God to the test. And right. and, uh, and in fact, Old Joe makes a specific choice in the future. to put. It's not just, I find myself in the presence of this kid and am I going to kill him or not. He hunts him down. He, he, he And I am going to go back in time. I, yeah. I escaped the, the mafiosos, and I look at the time machine and then it's no longer a matter of Protecting myself, or I've been thrown into this environment. It's, hey, I'm going to go back and do this. Yeah. Which you know, we we now find ourselves
1: in this interesting, you know, discussion because we keep talking about old Joe, mm-hmm. and you know, meanwhile, while all of this stuff is going on, we've got the young Joe, who's wrestling with his own problems in in the film. He's finding that this organization he's working for, he's not quite sure he wants to. And and there is that question of if he makes changes, you know, are they going to be real? And and I think one of the interesting things the film wrestles with. I mean, we're kind of used to in time travel stories where okay, something in in the past will affect the future you. I mean, you know, Back to the Future, Marty is sitting there playing the guitar at the dance. Yeah, and
0: that seems to have been the first
1: major one. Yeah, line line. And, and his parents are. They're kind of edging towards not meeting, and he starts to fade away, and he's like, ah, so that effect. Uh, this film takes that idea of changes to the young person affecting the the old person to some you know pretty logical extremes. Mm-hmm. Right, you know, carving messages in your body that create scars that the old person then can read, and that. But the thing that fascinated me was I'm thinking about the memories, the the, the character of a person, and. You know, they play with it somewhat in the sense that the things that young Joe sees that are new somehow, you know, moments later become part of old Joe's memory, and so that's one of the ways that they that old Joe learns things that are part of the new thing. Um, but there is also that thing; even his good memories start fading, and there is that question, you know, and again, this gets back to the predestination idea: Can we change the future? And I think this film is totally on the side of, yes, the future is not set. Right. The future is changeable, is mutable, and things can change you know the future is not predestined, I guess in other words. If we're talking in theological Christian terms, what does that have to, to say about you know salvation, you know, that idea of predestination? Well if anything.
0: Yeah. <laughs> For me, The most difficult or horrific aspect of the time travel notion is not so much changing the future, but the realization that any change of the future, in a sense, wipes certain people out of existence, right? If I I kill this person, then he's not going to get married, he's not going to have kids, Well, what happens to that kid? Does that kid, has that kid existed once? And is that a form of, it's funny, I just saw the movie, the documentary, Hellbound. Is that, you know, is that a form of soul annihilation? Have you, and it's just as a Christian, I can't really go there because I don't think human, if the soul is eternal, I don't think the humans have the capability of actually, annihilated taking something i don't think we can create ex nihilo out of nothing Mm -hmm. and i don't think we can actually destroy something that was there so then from a theological point of view i'm like then my question would be what happens to those Mm -hmm. souls do they just go straight to heaven without ever having lived the way that i might think of the soul of um you know a baby that dies in childbirth or, or or something like that I think that's more problematic if you're not a Christian, if you're atheist or an agnostic because then you're just postulating that someone never existed and you don't have a problem with that. But I, I do think that the Bible has, you know, instances, there's that famous passage, I think it's in the Psalms, uh, where the writer says, "Before I was born, right, you knew me, you know, which suggests that we don't come into being or existence at the moment of our conception, at least in the mind of God, because either God is outside of time or that we are, you know, pre-existent and still existent in the mind of God. I know I've I've read some theology about death or the afterlife of, uh, is there an immediate bodily resurrection? Do you go straight to heaven when you die? Or is in fact the body's dead and the soul in you know, alive in the mind of God, and we will be raised on the last day. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's sort of like, okay, well, if we're raised on the last day, where are we? Where are we in between <laughs> when, we when we die and the last day? That's the no of in the blink of an eye, you know, sure. we it'll be a million years, but it won't feel like anything because we won't have consciousness. I, I tend to, and this may just be a personal preference rather than a theological argument, uh, say once I start thinking about like it's possible for the soul exist to exist in the mind of God apart from the body, then it's not a big stretch for me to say there can be alternate, you know, alternate histories mm-hmm. uh, or alternative views in which I was never actually born in this linear one world, <laughs> uh, but I still exist. That doesn't mean that, that I don't exist. Now, this is a really abstract theological conversation. My question on that, then, is if that's so, does that make what we do in this life more meaningful or less meaningful? Like, is, it, is the anti-opt because then the only real difference is the kind of world that we create and the choices that we make, and it's okay to do that, to retro-engineer mm-hmm. a better world. Or does that just lower the ante and say, it doesn't really matter what we do, because in the end, we're all going to heaven anyway. And right. so why do we need to change the world to make it a better world so that this person lives and this person dies? I, I would also say, on, on just from a theological issue, uh, the whole question of time travel and the morality of time travel, we haven't even talked about, which is to say, to go back in time to fix who lives and who dies... Well, that's taking on the role of God for, your, right. for yourself and saying, "Who are
1: we to make the decisions?" For uh,
0: right to say, "I know, based on my own finite experience, what ought to be, right, instead of what is." And that's probably why I think science fiction movies aside, and I think it's fun to talk about it and think about it in science fiction movies. I, I I can't imagine that there's ever would be time travel because I don't see how that would fit in the moral. Mm. The universe that God has created. I mean, I, I, that may be the met- one metaphorical meaning of the flaming sword mm. in front of the Garden of Eden, which is to say, you can't do this because when you became fallen sinful creatures, you forfeited the ability or the right to be able to handle this without death. Right. <laughs> well, and to to bring
1: this back to the ground at, into the, our yeah. film in some ways i think that what you're talking about the film wrestles with a bit mm-hmm. because we, you know we get to this climactic scene where you know we've got several characters having to make some choices and you know and one of these choices, okay if i kill this one child you know everything's going to be better you know old, that's what old joe's wrestling with young joe thinks oh if i shoot this guy or this person That'll be the the way to fix it. But then he starts, you know, he has the moment of clarity where he looks, kind of follows things through in the future and says, oh, wait a minute. If this child grows up without a father, that's going to be the thing that triggers him into being this evil monster. Right. So rather than allow old Joe to do whatever he's going to do, I'll kill myself. And I'll take me out of the equation. And then that will mean that this child will grow up with a mother who will guide him and, you know, do all these things. And in our, you know, kind of pre-show notes, we were saying one of the things that this film really wrestles with or asks the question is, how do we make the world better? Do we change the world? Mm -hmm. Do we change external things outside of ourselves and thereby make the world better? Which I think in a lot of time travel films, that's kind of the idea. We go back, we... You know, we stop this assassination or we commit this assassination, um, and that changes things. But what about changing ourselves? The, the idea that perhaps the thing that needs to be fixed is me. And, you know, that, that question comes into a very real
0: physical answer. Mm-hmm. Well, a very real physical decision. Decision. Decision, <laughs> yeah. um, one of the things that I think is um, masterful about the script and the best thing about, about the movie for me it is the ending, as I was thinking about it while you were talking, because Joe makes an answer for what he thinks. Uh, but the ending is, I think you used the word subtle or, or understated in we know what... Joe thinks is going to happen. Mm-hmm. We don't know that that's going to happen or not. Uh, so the, the best, most accurate thing I can say is he might have changed the future. He could have changed the future. But he's given the future a, a chance. And yeah. I think that's very interesting to me because most of the time travel films will usually either have that godlike power or we'll have this very, you know, going back to 1001 or the medieval, thinking of the partner's tale and Chaucer, which is not really a time travel movie, but we'll have that, you can't change fate, whatever you do to try to change fate mm-hmm. actually ends up being the thing that triggers fate. Yep. And he has that realization. And so I think if the movie had gone that route of like, okay, I do this thing and. To change it, and that ends up being the thing that creates it. Well, that's a nice little neat plot loop, right? Uh, but that ends up being a very deterministic worldview, which is to sort of say your fate is your fate, and and you're ending up trying to change it. Young Joe says at a key point, "I saw where this was going. I saw what fate is, and I changed, changed it. it." Now, it may be the kind of thing where if someone is so inclined from their worldview to say. No, you didn't. Fate is, has many tributaries or streams and it's still going to end up being the thing. Mm-hmm. You could even, in fact, do a reading of the end of the movie that his action is the very thing that allows that fate to happen, the child to grow up and to become uh, that particular person. He, he puts his hope in, if I change one thing, if I change myself, then I'm things are going to be different. Or if they're not different... It's not because of me, right? And and I really love that about the ending because one of the things, one you know, a real common trope in a movie, you see this in war movies a lot with Nazi movies, right? You yeah. know, what Sophie's Choice or The Tenth Man, where they say, uh, I think in Dominion, the prequel to The Exorcist, you know, where the Nazi says, "Okay, you know, you pick who's gonna die." And or I'm going to kill 10 people. So so somehow or another, you become complicit in the decision and say, it's my fault. You know, that 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 huge scarring dilemma of, oh, my God, what have I done? Right. Uh, You know, how have I contributed to this? And it seems to me like young Joe at, at a key moment says, "Okay, this may happen. Fate may be inevitable history may be inevitable but I'm not gonna have a I part can't change that but I can change my part in it right I can change my role in it and I think that's a very moral humanistic affirming mm-hmm. resolution regardless of what the outcome comes and I love that the fact that the movie ended where it did because to a certain extent it didn't matter what happened
1: yeah. It, yeah, Our, know, star, our story point. is about Joe yeah and the, the character the whole character Joe mm-hmm. and yeah he makes his ch- he does change it. He changes
0: his story. Yeah, um, yeah. What yeah, he changes. That's that's his a perfect life. way of putting it. He changes. He changes his story, and sometimes that's all you can really, really do. You know, you right. can't change the meta narrative. If I use postmodern yeah. language, the only thing you can change is your story. You know, your role in it. Right.
1: And he does. And and I, I agree. I, yeah. When we were walking out of the theater, I, I the ending I did think was you know subtle and masterful. Hmm. um you know it's not the big fireworks show um it's yeah, in that kind of classic drama pyramid of climax falling action and then a you
0: know resolution
1: it really kind of follows that more than i think a lot of action Yeah, do
0: i appreciated that a lot in i guess commercial coming up here <laughs> in part because i i saw cloud atlas at Toronto and I've been working on a review of Cloud Atlas You know, come out and Cloud Atlas follows that traditional uh, more contemporary Hollywood structure that's beginning to drive me nuts about you can't just have one conclusion. You have to have seven conclusions right. and I think that, <laughs> yeah, you know, where it's like, oh, the movie's over. No, it's not <laughs> over. We have to have another 15 minutes and another climax. No, it's over. No, it's another. And of course, if anyone knows anything about Cloud Atlas, it's got six storylines. So you multiply that. Where you gotta have four endings, and each of six storylines has to have four endings. You got twenty-four endings, and, and it was just so nice to be like, oh, okay, everything. You know, Aristotelian. You got a beginning, a middle, and an end. This story has a beginning that sets things in motion, a middle where the action unwinds, and a clear resolution. And at that point. I think Ryan Johnson had enough confidence as a writer and a director to say, "I don't need anything else. I have told the story well. I have had an, uh, you know an effective climax that has morally brought things to a resolution. You get off the stage yeah. and let people applaud." And and
1: he does. Yes. Yeah.
0: We did. Yeah. And we do. Well, this this our
1: conversation feels like it's coming to a close. Yes. All right. Well. This has been The Thin Place. Thank you for listening. If you have comments on this episode, please visit our website at www.filmgeekradio.com and you can leave a comment or you can email us at thethinplace at filmgeekradio.com. You can also follow Ken on Twitter at Ken Moorfield, Tweet! Or at his blog, the number one, morefilmblog.com.